Welcome back, everyone, to the Chip Lunch Podcast, uh, episode 67, I believe. 67? 67. We are closing in on 100 episodes. Wow. I am, uh, as usual, joined by co-host, Brayden. Hello, Brayden. Hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Uh, we should say what we do on the Chip Lunch Podcast is talk to people at our church here at Soul Revival Church and ask them about their stories and their walk of faith. Oh, wow. <laughs> Maybe we should change it to Walk of Faith. Walk of the title. Walk of Faith. Woff. WF. I'm just thinking of like a George Michael album or something. Oh, that, like yeah, that does sound like a George faith. Michael album. Anyway. Faith. The faith, faith. faith. <laughs> Do you want to introduce our guest? A wild intro. <laughs> a wild intro. Yeah, Joel and the Blue Denim. Anyway. Baby. No, that's a different song. Faith. Faith. Yeah, no, it's faith. Baby. Yeah. I know you're asking me to stay, so please, anyway, please don't George go Michael away. aside, because you're giving me the blues. That's not That's the words, so, bro. I, the only reason I learned that was because Limp Biscuit <laughs> did a cover of it on their first album. <laughs> I'm going to find that. Well, you please don't. Our guest. Anyway, um, we're joined here this afternoon, today, mm. tonight. At whenever some you're point. listening, <laughs> whenever, wherever you are, <laughs> whenever you are. Future, past, present. <laughs> <laughs> and remembers them no more. <laughs> oh, wow. We are joined by Ian. Hi. How's it going? Good. Yeah? Hey, Brayden. Uh, you don't usually find yourself in Kirawi. Nope. Why are you in Kirawi today, Ian? Uh, I had a catch-up with Stu, and we had a staff meeting as well earlier. Nice. Also, though, promote, 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 plug, plug, plug. What uh, is coming up on the 4th of February? The supporters event for... The right gathering. Yes. Yeah. I'd love for everyone to come along. So 4th of February, 4 o'clock it starts, I think. Yep, 4 p.m. Yep. And right. so what's the, uh, if anyone doesn't know, what was, what's the intention of the supporters evening? Um, it's a chance for us to invite our Christian ministry partners and friends and family to come along and hear about what we're doing at Ride mm. um, and to be encouraged and to yeah just get to know us and our vision and also for us to be encouraged by them as they support us in prayer mm. as well. And you were saying um, in the meeting earlier that you think you're going to have like 100 people coming along. We're hoping. A million. Like, Grace has a lot of friends. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Grace. <laughs> That's cool though. Yeah. That she has a lot of friends, so to be able to invite them. Um, and are you looking forward to it? Oh, yeah. This is something you've been, you and Grace and Michelle and a lot of the core team have been working on for a long time. So, Yeah, yeah. It's been, I guess, three years in the making. So, mm. yeah. yeah, fantastic. And thanks again to you for all your efforts in getting this going and being part of it because it's it's really exciting, right? Yeah. yeah. Couldn't have done it without Soli's Kiriwi support. So, yeah, thanks to you guys <laughs> as well. Yeah. No, we love we love that we're planning a church outside the Southern Shire, really. Yeah. Yeah. Because you, you've done music and things as such over at, over at Ride. I, w I went yeah. to Ride when it was still in Michelle and... Grace's lounge room, which was so cool because yeah. there were so many people just in the lounge room. So it's great that you now have a permanent venue where you're actually meeting. It's fun. I remember um, Ian and Michelle and I did Berea together online mm, ages yeah, ago, and we yeah. did we did a mock gathering. If you oh, remember yes. that, <laughs> so we we did like a trial, I guess. Right, it would have been the first trial ride gathering just with us online, yeah, yeah. just to see how it would go. And it's pretty crazy to think. It's three years later and you're getting ready to go for real. Mm. It's yeah. pretty fun. It's mad. Yeah. Uh, anyway, let's turn our attention to Ian. <laughs> yes. First of all, I have a question, Ian. Well, we have lots of questions, but here's my <laughs> first one. Tell us about the shirt you're wearing today because... Uh, it's a nerd shirt, but um, <laughs> I, I think this was a gift. I didn't, I didn't buy it myself. It was, my sister gave it to me. I think, I think she knows I'm a nerd, so <laughs> she knows me well. 
Do you like the periodic table of elements? Is that the, yeah. or is it just because it's like yeah. you identify as a nerd, so that's that's what works? Yeah, yeah. I don't. Have I don't you double th- checked? They're all it. right. I sure have not. Accurate? I would no. not know myself. But yes, might be a mistake in there. Maybe who's going to put in that a secret message in know. there? Though? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I feel like it could be some like inside nerd joke on there. Oh, like it's like a code. Yes. It's, it's a what is it called? Um, oh, I forget what that's called. A puzzle. <laughs> no, a cipher. Ooh. Yes, that's what I was thinking. I don't think so. No. Unfortunately. <laughs> no. Okay, you yes. just shut me down. Yeah. That's a dumb idea, Joel. It's the periodic <laughs> table of elements. <laughs> anyway, uh, what um, do you know where your sister got this from? Maybe. Threadless, maybe. Oh yeah, one of those shirt places. Well, thank you for bringing it to the Chip Lunch, uh, to the uh, Third Space Studio on the Chip Lunch podcast. Uh, let's open, let's ask the first opening, the actual opening question, which is, Ian, how do you like to eat your hot chips? Um, <laughs> I don't actually have a really good answer. I, I did like Michelle's answer, like, which is to have it with friends. Very oh. cheesy, but nice answer. Um, uh, did you like Wing's answer? I did not like Wing's <laughs> answer. No. <laughs> Nobody likes those. Like, <laughs> he likes cold chips. No, right? I, I want, if I were to have chips, I would want them hot. Yes. yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think like my initial reaction to the question when I was thinking about it while I was driving down was mm. like as a true blue Asian, my, <laughs> true blue. My, true blue. my instinct would say if I had to choose, I would choose rice and not chips wow. as really? my carbs. As okay. Okay. But, um, but yeah, if I had to have chips, it has to be hot. Um, <laughs> And I would, I do like chicken salt. Oh, yes. And um, you said that you like, have you ever had hot chips and rice together? No, that would just be double it's carbs. Car- yeah. Carbs on carbs on carbs. Bit no, of bread I, on I don't, the I don't get the I don't get the people who, you know, put chips in the sandwiches or not. Because oh. like, <sighs> chips is like the carb. To, to me, it's the, the stuff, the stuffing, like the, I don't know, the, the staple rather than the, the meal. Okay, yeah. yeah. It's a hot chip sandwich is pretty good. And then there was Lauren's thing a couple of weeks ago where she's like ham, hot chips on a Ooh. on a sandwich. Are you eat them? Eat them? Eat them? I don't know if it's cold. Well, I suppose the hot chips would warm it up. Yeah, but it's yeah. kind of like that fattiness of the ham that would go with the chips. I reckon. Yeah, yeah. Well, your favorite one is the what's the Canadian one that you like? Oh, poutine. poutine. Yeah, poutine. Yeah. <laughs> Same as uh, Louise's. Yeah, it's. Uh, like that's the f- the fattiness from the gravy though. Oh, I guess rather than that from the ham. I guess it's like the people who like chips and bacon. I guess that's something similar. Mm-hmm. I don't know. We're getting really off track. Not like, really. We're talking about chips. It's chip lunch podcast. I guess, but uh, I want to concentrate more on Ian's. Okay. Sure. Ian's journey with hot chips. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> so not a staple for you. Not something. Not a go-to. Not but the go-to staple. If I get yeah. the choice, you know, mash or whatever, I'll probably choose that instead. Oh, like, mash instead. A potato mash. Yeah. Controversial. It's not really that controversial. It's just dry and like (laughs) (laughs) potato. That's it. Do you chuck a heap of butter on it? I love like mashed potato with plenty of butter. Yeah. You just don't seem that fussed by potatoes, actually. I mean, I do like carbs. I love carbs. (laughs) But chips is just not my carb. So, so what is your go to carb? It's just rice. rice. It's just rice. rice. Yeah. I would just eat rice with lots of things. Yeah. Like everything? Uh, like I think one of the things is because I live alone, and rice is the easiest thing to cook because mm. yeah. you got a rice cooker, you just stick it in. Yeah. And so, like, yeah, anything, le- any leftovers will always just end up going with rice in the end. Like whether it's, yeah, I mean, most of my leftovers tend to be Asian food as well. But like, mm-hmm. 
if it's even if it's just any other random like KFC or something, it would just probably go with rice. Like, oh really? Yeah. KFC would be good with So rice. like nuggets and rice? and rice? Or you just have oh, the chicken? The chicken. Okay. Is there do you have any tips on cooking rice? Because how do you like make sure it's like do you know if there's a way to make it like extra like fluffy? Buy a rice cooker. It's buy a rice cooker <laughs> <laughs> and buy the right kind of rice. Oh like, yeah. What's the difference? What's the rice? I, I mean, there's the different people have different tastes for rice. I right. Think. What's your the, go-to? It's the Golden Phoenix, the purple bag. If you go to Asian groceries, Ooh. like, do you think so? That's like the, the different type like of rice. It's like a short grain. Yeah. Actually, and do you think the brand makes a difference? Yeah, I think the brand makes a difference. Yeah. I, I only ever buy the one brand, so I wouldn't know actually. Like, <laughs> Why, why that brand? It's just the brand that my parents buy. So, oh, I guess, okay. Yeah. okay. So, it's a generational thing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Passed down, down from generation to generation. Yeah. The rice brand. The minute I found out that restaurants just use rice cookers, it was like, oh, okay, well, I don't know why anyone Hang would on. bother. There's different types of restaurants. Yes. Which kind of, well, you think every single restaurant is using a rice cooker? Yeah. Okay. For sure. What's wrong with the rice cooker? Nothing. Oh, well, that's wrong what with I was. It. I thought like I, I thought it was like oh, it wouldn't be as good because it's just a machine doing. Like I, I thought like obviously you'd need to put more time and effort into it, more care and love into the mm. rice, yeah, and I get a better result. But it seems like the, if you're, well, if professionals are, can you do to rice? It's well, I don't just know. If professionals are just using like, a rice cooker, then I was like, well, okay. Well, well that's the thing. That's I think the best way to like do it. the the implication in my head of a rice cooker is like what a bread maker is to bread. Like yeah. the like involving an appliance while convenient might not make it as good. But you know how everyone bought, a, bought bread makers a while ago and then never made bread for themselves? But it doesn't seem like it would be that case with rice. I don't get a bread maker. I've made bread plenty of times and I've never felt the urge to buy a bread maker. All right, don't brag about your bread making skills. Okay, I won't. I'll bake a bread and over <laughs> Bake you in a minute. Can Sorry. you tell us? <laughs> you can the afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you got to go at me for giving the good morning episodes and the afternoon episodes. Definitely. You reckon? Yeah, I reckon you could tell them apart pretty easily. I'm on the same weirdo every single time. <laughs> um, Ian, why don't we ask the next most important question, which mm. informs a lot of the podcast when we have guests on? Mm-hmm. How did you become a Christian? Um, I'd like to start answering this question. I come from a Christian family, um, but I like to start because to me, I like to take it as in, you know, how, why am I a Christian now? Mm. And I think for that to be answered well, that needs to go back to like my spiritual family tree rather than mm. just starting from me. Okay. Uh, because as with most people, well, I hope all people, uh, that like it's, if you come from a Christian family, somewhere along the, the spiritual family tree, there is someone who actually became Christian first. Um, and my dad told me the story once, so this is going to be like third hand, but, um, <laughs> but I like the story, so I just want to share it. Yep. Um, so the first Christian that became, sorry, the first person that became Christian in my family was my grand aunt. Um, and she was living, this is 1930s. Um, she was living in pre-war Shanghai mm-hmm. um, in China. Um, and she's uh, apparently, um, they were living actually, like apparently they were living in some kind of like uh, block in the, in in Shanghai where if you ever seen Kung Fu Hustle, like it's like <laughs> this this little like courtyard with like everybody living in the same area and knows each other kind of thing. Like um, uh, Kung Fu Panda. 
Kung Fu Hustle. I haven't seen Kung Fu Hustle. I was in Kung Fu Panda movie. Is it a village or is it? It's kind What is Kung Fu Hustle? Um, I'll look it up while you keep it's going. It's like a, anyway, it's not actually relevant to the story. I don't know why I'm bringing it up. I think <laughs> no, this is my right. dad explained it to me while he was telling me the story and I was like, this is the thing that made him. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, grand aunt. So, so my, my grandma has one sister and basically that, that family just had like two, two daughters. Um, and I think my, like their, their father passed away quite young. So in the end, they just left with just the, the mom and two daughters, um, my grandma and her older sister. And um, they were like three women living in China in those, in those times is like like quite a bad situation to be in because there's nobody to support them that kind of stuff. So I think what ended up happening was like quite young that the older sister, my grand aunt, married married into like a slightly wealthier family, but as a second wife. And those those days, like, yeah, people can have multiple wives. Right. Um, and as a result, it's actually not treated that well um, because almost like a concubine to some extent, not, not that bad, but like um, to that extent. Um, and so her life was quite poor. Um, she got in, ended up getting into gambling, getting into opium, which was a thing back then. China. Mm. Uh, and, and somehow, somewhere, and I don't, because this part of the story I'm super fuzzy about, she got invited to some gospel rally in China in 1930s, which is <laughs> like, who, how, I don't know. I don't know who, who it was, uh, but she got yeah. invited. Um, and as a result, became a Christian. So whoever invited her, I owe, I owe this person in some ways, um, like my conversion too. Um, and, at, and basically her, her life turned around as a result of it. She ended up um, like quitting opium, um, quitting gambling, just, and, and I think even the people around living, because everybody knew each other and that kind of like, I think that's where the story came in, where we had, yeah. my dad was trying to explain the whole, you live in this village kind of place anyway, um, kind of noticed the, the, the transformation in her. Um, and the, back then my grandma was still a young girl really. Um, and I think as a result, my grand aunt brought her to church as well. And so ultimately my grandma became a Christian as well. I think, so when my grandma became a Christian, she already gotten married maybe. Um, sorry, a lot of this story is quite fuzzy. But I'm just, it's a cool story. I, I should ask my parents to tell, tell me again. But anyway, um, and what happened was World War II started happening. So mm. this is 1930, late 1930s. Um, and so the whole family had to run away. So my, my grandma just got married to my grandpa, I think. And um, yeah, I think my oldest uncle was just born, but my dad had, so, so my grandma just got pregnant with my dad. The war happens they have to run from the Japanese. Mm. And so they kind of come down to Hong Kong. And that's, that's why ultimately like, my family got brought up in Hong Kong. Um, but because my grandma had just become a Christian, um, my, she couldn't get baptized. She wanted to get baptized, she couldn't get baptized. Uh, and so she made this vow to God, like to say that, hey, uh, like, Lord, I, I can't get baptized right now, but I would dedicate this child that I'm having to you. Um, and so that was one of the, her, her prayers at the time. Um, and then she, they ended up in Hong Kong um, and giving birth to my dad. And so that was actually a thing that, that she never told my dad even while my dad was growing up. Um, and then, but then she brought up like her children going to church and stuff like that. So that, that's how my dad ultimately became Christian as well. Um, that's, which is another story. Uh, if, 
which another long story, which I won't go into right now. <laughs> but but one, but eventually my dad become convicted that he should go into full time ministry. So my dad's a pastor right. or a retired pastor. Um, and but the problem was my my granddad, as in as in my grandma's husband, also passed away quite young. Like when my dad was in uni, he passed away. Uh, and so my dad. My, so my oldest uncle had already gone out working already by that point because they had to support the whole family. And then my grandma had five kids, so there's a big family support. And so my dad, when he finished uni, he, he felt called to the ministry, uh, but he was like, oh, if I told mum that I'm going to ministry, there's, there's no money in it. Like, um, and so like, he was worried that he would be not doing the, the Asian thing of, of supporting your own family and that kind of stuff. Uh, but then when, when he shared that with her, um, she, she broke down in tears and just explained the whole story of, you know, promising to God that, you know, um, dedicating you actually to God. Mm. Um, and so she was very happy that, you know, he actually chose to go into full-time ministry to serve. Um, yeah. And then I guess I am one generation after that. And I just reap all the benefits of like growing <laughs> up in a, in a loving Christian family, um, knowing God since I was a child. Uh, but I mean, like most people for myself, I think I, did not really understand the gospel fully until like late high school age, mid, mid late high school, I wouldn't say. So like for my own testimony, my own journey, I think um, I remember vividly that just before migrating to Australia, which like I was maybe about 12 years old, um, my parents took me and my sister on a holiday, just like a last holiday in Hong Kong before coming to Australia. And uh, because I was 12 years old, I was coming of age. So my, my dad like took me aside into their, so, so me and my sister were staying in one room in, in one of the hotels and then like uh, they took me into it. Like they just took me into the parents' room and then sat me down and gave me this view about like, you should take Jesus seriously now that you, you can make your own decisions, that kind of stuff. Um, and I remember that conversation. And then at the end of it, like I went back to my sister's room or, or me and my sister's room. Um, and she was like, oh, what did dad want to talk about? And that, at that time, my sister who's slightly older than me, she's kind of in that rebellious phase. And so she's like, stop, stop going to church, all that stuff. Um, and she was like, oh, what, what, what did that one talk to you about? And I was like, oh, religious stuff. <laughs> like, it was my response. So, so to me at that point, like, I think faith and like God was still very much my parents' business and wasn't my own. Um, and yeah. And then it's not until I think I came to Australia. So when I, when I migrated here, I was in year eight. It was actually a little bit traumatic for me to, to move countries. Um, I didn't quite expect it. So I moved to the US to live for one year when I was six years old. Um, and during that time I had lots of fun because the, the schooling system in Hong Kong is like super hardcore, memorize everything, you know, like, <laughs> like trig trigonometry like, when you're six years old. No, yeah, not quite, road, like, road learning. Yeah, road thing, learning yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. Mm. Whereas when in the US it was just like fun and games. It was just like, <laughs> <laughs> like dress up for Halloween and stuff. Anyway, um, yeah. So I had a fun, great fun time in the US. So I was like, oh, coming to Australia, that'd be cool. Like I'd just be like bludging like I was, back in when I was six years old. But, um, <laughs> but I think it was quite like different in the sense that it wasn't that schooling was ch hard or challenging. It was more just, it was a completely new system that I wasn't used to as a yeah. teenager. I had no friends. Um, I just didn't, at that age, I didn't register that, hey, I'm gonna leave all my friends back in Hong Kong and this is gonna be a place where I know nobody. Um, I, I'm completely unfamiliar with the system. So in Hong Kong, when you're at school, you stay in the one classroom for the entire day and then the teachers are the ones that come in and kind of teach oh. different classes. Whereas here, you go to different classes. Every, so after the first period, in, when I first class in year eight, everyone walked off like <laughs> the classroom. I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> what, do I do? <laughs> what, what am I doing? Like, yeah. I had no idea. And what, ended up wandering the school like just by myself, oh. like for like 
I don't know, I don't, it felt like an eternity, but like yeah. eventually I wandered into the teacher's room and then asked them for instruction. But, but basically it was just a foreign system to me and mm, I just yeah. felt really alone. Um, and I remember like going back home and then running straight to the toilet so that I could cry in the toilet so that my parents wouldn't see that I'm struggling with the whole move. Um, yeah, so it was quite a difficult time. And I think, but as God often does, like he uses um, difficult periods to draw us to himself. And I think during that time, um, I started going to the youth group at, at the church that my, my dad pastored at um, and made really good friends. And so from, from those kind of relationships really developed um, yeah, a, a fellowship with other Christians. Um, and also just for the first time, I think um, I was able to ask questions of the youth leaders and they gave really good answers. I think, like given that I'm a nerd, like I, I, I the, the way that I learned about God as a first thing was a very rational like kind of approach of like, is this really true? Can I really believe that God exists? Is the Bible really reliable? Um, and so um, as I investigated on that kind of very intellectual level, at, at, as well, during my high school years, I think I reached the conviction that this is really true um, and yeah, called myself a Christian. Um, and yeah, but I, I would say that it wasn't until I was, so I got baptized, I think year 12 or something like that. Um, but it wasn't until maybe even uni age when I started going to CBS and all those things, which was quite formative as well, uh, where I felt that I really got to understand what a relationship with God really meant, meant like in terms of um, yeah, knowing his love for me and the fact that, um, I mean, I acknowledge the truth of you know, my own sin and need for forgiveness, but it wasn't, I think, until kind of uni that that really hit home for me as mm. as a intimate relationship with God. I mean, there's always steps along the way, isn't there? Like, mm. I think I became a Christian in year 10, but I don't think I took it properly seriously until year 12. And then, <clears throat> even after that, I still had so much growth to say, actually, I'm making this decision. Mm. But it's funny that before we just started recording, you're like, oh, I won't have much to say. <laughs> that was quite a story. And the only reason I'm saying it's quite a story is this, like, there was just a, a, a couple of questions I want to ask you about going on there. Why did you move to the US when you were six? My dad was studying theology uh, in Fuller Seminary in the US. Oh, very, yeah. a very, that's a very prestigious seminary, right? Just for one year. Yeah. Where, where is that? LA. Oh, in LA. Yeah, so I lived in Pasadena for oh. one year. Okay, so just for one year and then yeah. back to Hong Kong. Back to Hong Kong, yeah. So then what uh, made your family choose to move to Australia? Was it your dad pastoring somewhere? Uh, yeah, so basically my mum, before she got married, uh, studied nursing and part of her nursing degree she had to do, um, like giving birth to babies, what's the thing called? Um, Anyway, like midwifery, mid midwifery. That's, mm -hmm. that's when. Yeah, uh, and she actually did that as a practical in Sydney. Okay. Right. Um, so she travelled from Hong yeah, Kong to yeah. do that. Okay. And during that time, she stayed, did a like homestay kind of thing with a couple who was a a um, pastor couple, like basically pastor and his wife. And so that couple ultimately started a Chinese church here in Sydney in the intervening years, and they needed pastors, and so. We were like I think my family came to Australia for a holiday, like the year before I migrated, and then they kind of invited my dad to go. Hey, we we have needs for Chinese pastors here, um, and me and my sister were completely oblivious. But then, eventually, <laughs> I think my sister discovered some letter that was sitting on my parents' bed, which is like like basically saying that hey, come come over to Australia and work for us. 
And so we, we, well, she then told me, and then I was like, oh my goodness. And then eventually my parents <laughs> only told us three weeks before we migrated that we were uh, uprooting <laughs> and coming over to. Yeah. How did that go? Yeah. I mean, like I said, uh, to me, I was fine. Like, yeah. I, was like I, I didn't understand this concept of losing all my friends. And like, <laughs> yeah, it could just be the same over yeah. there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got to reestablish all the relationships. Is that what you found the hardest? Like actually moving to Australia? Because you were saying there was a few things like adapting to it, but it was the fact that you were kind of on your own. Um, yeah, like, I think it was, yeah, in the beginning, just feeling of isolation and mm. not knowing, yeah, where to go for support in some sense, because I don't want to go to my parents because they're like, firstly, they're parents at that age, you kind of had wanting to yeah, go in person, anything. but like, <laughs> uh, but yeah, but also at the same time, not having anyone else to turn to. Where, where were you? Where did you move to when you first came? Uh, I think for a very short period of time, I lived with my auntie's family in Stratfield, but then like the, our school, Penny Hills High, is in oh, Penahills, yeah. so okay. we lived in Penny Hills for a little bit and yep. then eventually just same area, eventually. Just yeah. stayed in that area. Yeah. yeah. What mm. did church look like during that period mm. for you? Um, so like the so first week of coming to Sydney, I think I, so the, the church is a Chinese church that my, my yeah. dad pastored at. Um, they have a Chinese congregation, a Cantonese-speaking congregation, and an English congregation at the time. Uh, but the first week I went to the Cantonese-speaking congregation because I was just with my parents. Yeah. And I just fell asleep during the... <laughs> that, that's all I remember. I, was I your actually, dad preaching? I can't remember who was <laughs> preaching, but, but I remember... Because back in Hong Kong, actually, like kids even in high school, like, because like, I was in year eight, yeah, kids in high school still didn't go to the service. I think we just went oh, to wow. Sunday school. Yeah, okay. Um, if I remember correctly. And so it was my first time in a service. I was just like, well, who's talking? Like, <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's, yeah, uh, yeah. And then anyway, yeah, so fell asleep. That's all I remember. Like, and I think every week I fell asleep. And so eventually my parents <laughs> was like, oh, no, no, how about you go to, to like the English foundation where there are younger people and then um, you'll find friends there. And so I ended up going to the English. When was the last time you fell asleep during church? Uh, last week, yeah, when I was preaching, you can't remember. Yeah, can't remember. That's great. Okay. I'm sure there are times. Um, I just remember when you um, you actually preached for one of the digital services we were doing, which was a really cool experience for me. <laughs> but um, I remember the story that you were saying about it was a communion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was one of the, the early weeks. Yeah, you, you yeah. didn't know what to do know with what, the bread. In Hong Kong, they, they didn't do communion. Like, at least the kids didn't go to the service, like I was saying. Oh, okay, right. Yeah. Um, and so it was the first time I experienced communion. It was like, yeah. what is this? Okay, they're handing out bread. I'm going to take one. Um, <laughs> and then, then the girl next to me goes, oh, the kids are not meant to take this bread. You know, like it's holy bread kind of thing. Okay. And I was like, uh, okay. Didn't you like roll it up? Yeah, I just rolled it up <laughs> and I flicked it. So, so there's probably still a piece of bread stuck in the, <laughs> stuck in the cracks of the, the floorboard the floor somewhere on, <laughs> in my in high school where we were meeting because yeah. uh, no, no, I, I was here when you recorded it and then I'm like to my wife Karen like because that's when it went up and the next time I'm like Karen you've got to listen to that she loved it she thought it was so funny like just the way you described it was really cool so do you think eventually once so you were four so you say you were 12 or 14 when you moved to Australia I, I was for just 14 okay yes. it was year eight, no 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 wait, 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 hang on yeah no, no, you're no, right wait, I was 92 I was, I was 13 13 okay yeah and you said it was quite difficult. You felt isolated. Did those kind of feelings change as you got used to being um, in mean, Penhills? Yeah, I mean, it felt like an eternity at the time because it was a dark period. But like, I yeah. think within maybe half a year, I had made friends at school. Stuff like that. So, yeah. yeah. And do you think, and like those kind of feelings and stuff, did that push you closer to God? 
I think it definitely pushed me closer to fellowship with other Christians yeah. at church at the time. Yep. Um, yeah, I made really good friends at church who I still would call brothers today. Um, mm. Yeah, so yeah, and, and I think growing up with those other brothers in Christ really yeah, drew drew me to what, what they saw as important as well. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I, I was doing um, actually doing a like a devotional study thing, and it was uh, it's on Paul's letters, and it takes. Um, uh, a section out of Titus, and I can't actually remember the verse, but it talks about like how, as Christians, we should live to show how compelling Christ is. So we should live as righteously as we are able to, and and you know, and to use the power that God gives us through Jesus to actually be transformed. And I just, it was just what you were saying there made me think of that. It's like when uh, we're around other Christians. Again, it feels like you're closer to God, so I can understand why you're saying that. I don't know why I said that, but it's just I was just thinking about that yesterday, so it makes sense. And I, and I mean, just hearing you say that is an encouragement for us to keep hanging out. We know that sometimes that a lot of like a regular churchgoer is nowadays is someone that comes once or twice a month, but to encourage people to like let's get, let's do it every week because there's there's so much to be gained from that. So if you went through high school, you got friends. Did you have an idea about what you wanted to do with your life once you finished school? Because it's always a big moment, right? Uh, no, I, I've never been a person that actually plans too far ahead. I think, mean. <laughs> mm. uh, yeah, I think in, in my mind, like I think, I, yeah, even even at the HSC, I didn't put down my preferences. <laughs> until my parents had a talk with me and I was just like, oh, there's a new degree called software engineering. Like, would you, it sounds like you're down, down your alley kind of thing, which, which was, so. Why did they say that though? Like, what were you doing to make them think that? Uh, I mean, I, I, I liked computers. I have always liked video games. And you know how like all, all, not all kids, but like me anyway, like, like I was like, oh, if I, if I had a dream job, it would be like game programmer kind of thing. Yep, yeah. game designer, uh, game what programmer. Was your, yeah. What was your go-to yeah. video game? Back in the day. Back in the day. Uh, what did you spend the most hours on, do you reckon? I don't like in in uni it was StarCraft. Ooh. But Brood War, like not not the later one. I'm pretty old. Um, <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I this is before, before like consoles? Like I was playing on PC. I was playing. Okay, it's on PC. Yeah. So yeah, StarCraft is a I remember when I was like kind of high school people would be talking about oh, StarCraft, the best game ever. Is that a role-playing game? It's RTS, like real-time strategy. Just just like StarCraft 2 right real now. Real-time strategy. Yeah. Anyone, anytime someone says strategy, I'm excited. <laughs> I might have to play it. <laughs> Is there anything else? Any other games besides StarCraft? Uh, I mean, I don't know. I played all sorts of games. Like I started off like, so when, when my like I said, my dad went to, the, you know, my family went to the US for one year. Like mm. they, like my dad got a typewriter, electronic typewriter. Oh, I remember those. <laughs> um, yeah. This is like, because he thought this is the most advanced thing and you're going to this US like modern country and mm. you're gonna like be, be up, up with it. Um, <laughs> and then like uh, he, he got, shows up to the first lecture, pulls up his electronic typewriter. Everybody else pulls up a laptop. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, okay. And so that electronic typewriter ended up being like me and my sister's toy for the longest time. Because yeah, it was okay. just like, the first computer-like thing that, that we had. So I, I remember typing up like stories, <laughs> like creative writing kind of like just on, on that typewriter. That, that's my first 
game, I guess. That I did. <laughs> <laughs> Using something. And are you playing? Are you still gaming now? Oh yeah. Oh, oh yes. Oh yeah. What are you playing? <laughs> Too, right much. Now? Too much. Too <laughs> much. Um, lately, I've been playing Elden Ring, which ah, is yeah. a, that's a popular game. I don't see. I don't. Oh, see, see, this is a kind of realm that I'm not aware of as much in gaming. So, tell me why you like El is it Elder Rings or Elden Ring? Elden Ring. Um, why do I like it? It's hard. I think I like hard things. Um, yeah. Have you ever played Monkey Island? Yes, I have played Monkey Island. That game is legit very difficult in my opinion. Really? But Okay. <laughs> Sorry, I did, I did not mean it like that. No. You idiot! He's like, <laughs> really? You idiot. Oh, jeez. <laughs> you don't. You no. I think I had Monkey Island too, and it was okay. maybe I was too young, but I had yeah. no idea you how to. Need to be I remember slightly, Pokemon yeah. being very hard when I couldn't read. <laughs> <laughs> I could read then. I could read Monkey Island. Um, sorry, let's go back to Elden Ring. But sorry, no, I, I, I did like Monkey. I remember playing Monkey Island with a couple of friends. There was a lot of good jokes in Monkey yeah, Island. Yeah, yeah, and laughing our heads off. Yeah. Mm. Uh, sorry, Elden Ring though. What's what's the appeal? Uh, oh, it's hard. It's hard. I think I like hard things. It, it, there's that feeling of when you do a hard thing and you uh, succeed, achieve it, mm. then then it feels good. So, what do you have to do in Elden Ring? Like, what's the what's the main? Give me the synopsis. The IMDb of it's one of those games where, like, and like that's I guess the other the other yeah. thing that makes it like interesting is that it's very vague. Yeah, um, it's like build a so character, do quests kind of thing, like isn't it? It it's Japanese, like the, from software, the company that makes uh, it is yeah. Japanese, and and they like this vague, don't tell you anything kind of approach to things, and so, but then they they kind of tell snippets of the story through item descriptions or the environment. You gotta like kind of like, and there's also there's always YouTube videos out there going like explaining like the law behind the, the game when there's nothing in the game that actually tells you anything really. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> but but that's it, it's yeah. just cool, you know, coming out with your own like. Not job series of of like of of what the story really is. Yeah, um, yeah. Apparently, George R. R. Martin actually helped write the the story behind. Oh, he's um, Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones Game author, of Thrones. isn't he? Yeah, Some yeah, right. Yeah. So, how does he get it? Is, is it more like like what's my character? Am I what era am I playing in, or is it a bit more there's fantasy? Not, fantasy, like I said, there's no, it's fantasy. I guess. Okay. Yeah. It's low fantasy. Well, there's high fantasy. There's dragons and stuff. Hang on. What's low and high fantasy? Oh, man. I don't know. I, don't I, know. I never got into fantasy. I've got to be honest. I don't know how to describe it, but I, I, Elden Ring is very dark. I mean, the, the series that it kind of comes from is called Dark Souls. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, yeah, it's not very bright in the themes. There's a lot of, yeah, yeah, like dodgy stuff happening with the lore, like if you read deeply into it. Okay. Oh. Yeah. Do you know the difference, Braden, between high fantasy? High, is high like low? Lord of the Rings. It's like elves and dragons yeah. and oh. that kind of stuff. I so don't know what low fantasy is. Is low fantasy I, just I would like say more evil? Like, like closer to humans, but yeah. like more dark? Like or Game of Thrones is sort of low fantasy because magic, yeah. magic is very not obvious in the world. Yeah, in it's like there, but it's not like a main thing. Ah, uh, so, okay. Yeah. But know. high fantasy, like the magic is like. Yeah, everywhere. Oh, yeah, kind okay. Of there you go. I've like learned more disconnected, though. I guess, from reality. Yeah, from what our reality. Yeah, what our reality would be. Okay, cool. Yeah. So you see, gaming as a bit of an escape. Yeah. Is it also like maybe related to the isolation stuff that you could go into this and it'd be like something that you'd be keen on, like to be able to. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's just yeah, maybe no, I guess slightly so more brainless yeah. activity that. Yeah. That yeah, helps me like relax. The, yeah. The same reason people go fishing. Like some people find it relaxing. Yeah. To do that, people gaming. 
Yeah, I'd rather game than go fishing, I reckon. I don't. I'm just saying. I need action. I don't need, need action? To, yeah, sometimes. There's high action in fishing. Though. When you get a fish. Yes. Though. It's but like it's, there's it's that reward low, thing. Like yeah, it's hard. It is. Yeah. It's hard. Yeah, right. I, I heard something recently that, you know, like when you achieve something, like doing something hard, working something hard and achieve it, the dopamine is different. Like that you get the dopamine hit in your brain, like the, the chemical. By the way, just disclaimer, I'm not a scientist. <laughs> if you hadn't already guessed. <laughs> but Listen to the other 66 yeah, but episodes. They, but they, but uh, it was a guy called, um, some people might have heard of him, he's called Dr. Andrew Huberman. He's like yeah. a neuroscientist and he's on lots of podcasts and stuff. I feel like he just did the rounds on like everything. He has done lots of podcasts <laughs> at the moment. But also he was saying that Next if, week. if you don't have to work hard to achieve the same dopamine hit and he's relating this to social media for example mm-hmm. and he's saying if you are constantly getting dopamine where you haven't worked hard for it it's actually really detrimental to the brain and i can't remember the next bit <laughs> but he was basically saying we've been so used in life a lot of the time to have to work hard to 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 get something a result or an outcome or whatever it is but smartphones have completely changed that that the limit to actually getting the dopamine hit is really um really easy so then your brain becomes more addicted to it so you're still trying to find a higher and higher dopamine hit but you keep going to the thing that makes it easier and easier Mm. and that's why people do social media or internet detoxes Mm. because they basically have to detox from teaching their brain to have this constant thing of not having to work hard for dopamine whereas actually our bodies and and i I suppose we could argue that the way that god has designed our bodies is to actually like work hard for something so you get the reward or the rewarding feeling at a certain time do you find that like so you went into computers and information (laughs) studies do you find that that? you're like this um, is boring no i'm just trying to actually Talk to Ian. We could talk about this yes. without Ian. Sorry, I, I apologise. <laughs> I enjoy uh, having I Ian here. Yeah. I'm, I'm winding all over the place today. Yeah. Sorry, Brad. No, so no, I was just wondering, like, do you get that same kind of problem-solving stuff with the with work and computers and information studies stuff you're doing? Mm. Yeah, yeah, I definitely do, and I definitely f- like God's kind of put me in in a at least right now in in an industry where I very much feel like my yeah the way that He's designed me fits yeah mm-hmm. like this kind of work where there's a lot of problem solving mm. and it is very satisfying to solve hard mm. problems yeah because yeah, like software engineering or coding is i mean i've heard it described as a bit of an art it's almost like right like writing a story or an article or whatever it's that there's different levels of how well you can code would you agree with that oh yeah yeah for sure i mean it's not art in the sense that you can do whatever you, like creative with it but there's definitely an art to it Mm. of like there's good looking code in this like clean clean code and all that kind of thing is that is that because like people can come in and when they look at the code they can figure out easily what's going on compared to if it's jumbled up it's a lot harder to figure out where a problem is some people think that it's elegant to have this like one line that no one can ever read and but it does all the (laughs) things you know (laughs) but it's yeah so you're not a one line kind of guy i mean there there is elegance to like you know like (laughs) clever yeah like lines of code let's say but yeah i mean you, you work in a team you've got to be like yeah 
people got to oh, understand it. Sophisticated, like code kind of. So it is, I mean, again, it's the same as writing. If you're writing all over the place and people are like, I don't know what they're talking about. It's the same with code, I suppose. You're just communicating in a different way of like, this is how I've programmed or command or put commands into something. And then if you go say, can you go in and change something or like fix this bug or something like this, if they can't figure it out, they're like, yeah, well, I'm, yeah. I'm lost. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there, there's some art to like, I, I don't know, like cool, cool algorithms kind of thing. Like, like imagine like if you're reading Shakespeare, it's not the easiest to understand, mm. but then the, the thing that it can express is quite mm. cool. I guess coding is different because ultimately you want the output to just be a functional piece of software. Um, to perform the function yeah, it's meant yeah, to. So it's, there's, there's less to, no one's going to read the code to, to enjoy it, you know, like, yeah. like you would read like <laughs> Hamlet or something like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> unless you're a coder, unless yeah. you're a coder yeah. maybe yeah. though. Yeah. Did you, that's like, obviously you've been working in the industry for a little while that's made a lot of changes. Mm. Do you, yeah. Have you found that challenging to keep up with new things and like, have you had to retrain or just oh, like For sure, I haven't, I'm not getting job? any younger. That, that's, that's what I'm <laughs> realising as I get like in further and further into this industry. Um, yeah, definitely the environment or even the way that we do work uh, mm. has changed a lot since when I first came out of uni. Mm. Um, yeah. Um, what would you say is the biggest difference between what you did at uni, which I'd like to ask you about, but what you did at uni and what you do now? Is it automation? Biggest change. I, I mean, there's, there's so much, but like one that comes to mind is just the process of software development has changed. So back then, uh, we have this process called waterfall. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. Like where you kind of, you have a project, you plan like what you're going to do, you implement what you're going to do, you test what you're going to do, and then you deliver what you're going to do. And that would be like, you know, two years as, as the whole project. Um, and which means that in those two years, if any of your requirements changes, You've already planned the, the stuff, you just got to keep follow through until yeah. you deliver. And then, but then obviously with modern kind of software development processes, you, we recognize that, you know, the world moves fast and you can't just go, hey, make a plan that lasts for two years. Mm. Um, and so this whole agile like methodology comes into play where you, yeah, you break your work down into sprints, which is usually two weeks or something like that, or one week or whatever. And then each sprint, you have a, a backlog of work to do, which you, you try to achieve. And then... Uh, but then at the end of those, the, the cycle, basically it's, it's iterative and you go back and evaluate, okay, which are now the top items, which are the highest priority. And it could be like something new came in, in the last week that says, hey, instead of wanting a red car, we want a blue car now. And so um, you've got to paint it blue. And then, so that's a new task to paint it blue. Um, and then you can definitely change your kind of priorities as time progresses. So by the time at the end of it, when you're delivering, you're delivering what the customer actually wants. Wow. Um, and so it's kind of that, Agile methodology is, is a big change, mm. I think, within the software industry. It feels like the two-year process is, like you're saying, very, like quite old school, like the kind of first version of software development, whereas like we have time to, like we <laughs> spoke about just before recording Windows 95, like the next Windows came out, Windows 98, right? So that's a gigantic computer company in Microsoft mm. taking three years to build their next iteration where now it seems that, things are moving so fast that you like you can't do that like that's impossible because like by the time then the customer like you're saying is their priorities have changed already 
and I suppose yeah, I'm just reiterating what you were basically saying. Your parents though said that software engineering would be a good idea. When you saw that as a priority, or so as a um, a choice, as a unicorn, you're like, yes, that's definitely what I want to do. Yeah, I mean, I didn't have strong opinions, but definitely in the sciences because I was very much a nerd. So yeah. And I like computers, so it makes sense. You keep saying um, that you're a nerd. What do you think that, why do you say that you're a nerd? Um, I don't know. I just like, I think maybe nerd is not the right word, but like I, I like to go into things deeply. And so when I'm interested in something, I'll just like spend a lot of time researching or reading up or going into it. So mm. I think. In that sense, mm. I can do very focused tasks, like like which I think software engineering requires. Definitely, yeah, yeah. Well, like any again, we can relate it to writing or anything. If if you can dedicate two hours of uninterrupted time to something, you're really going to get a lot more done and a lot deeper level than something that you just do bits and pieces of. It's not going to be as good. What was the other question I was going to ask? Where did you end up going to do software engineering then? New South. Okay. Is that the yeah, place so to do it in Sydney? Like the year that I did it was the second year it was offered. Like, oh. uh, like that was way back. Um, yeah, but it was, it was the right place. I mean, it was the engineering was typically you go to New South Pole, I think. Mm. And was that time you decided you wanted to be a game designer? Uh, like as a kid, I wanted that. Like <laughs> I, I recognize that I look at the life of game developers. that's just like way too hard. Yeah, life. talk about that a bit yeah, more because I've heard a few stories about that. Sorry, you're going to say something, right? Oh, just it seems like it's very much deadline, yeah. Like take over your whole life. Kind yeah, is of that job. right? I, I mean, I haven't never been. I don't even know any game developers myself. But just looking at the kind of work that would be required, I imagine you'd just be all-consuming in some way. Yeah, I mean, I've seen like uh, sort of like leaked memos or something from some game, like the big gaming companies, and they're like, "Yeah, we worked fifteen-hour days for six weeks, or so, not like for a couple of years, yeah, to get stuff done." Because it is such a big industry now, but it's mm. you think they might be able to develop some better ways of getting oh. stuff done, given that it's Santa Monica Studios, who are a big gaming thing, released like a really long documentary on what it was like to release a AAA game, which is like one of the games with the biggest budgets in the world, and it just looks like so much work, yeah, on, and so many deadlines, and not meeting those deadlines is like chaos, and trying to make it just looks like. I'm like, wow, it sounds really fun to be a game developer. And then you see what it's actually like. You're like, that is so much work. Mm. It's crazy. Especially yeah. how like those big games, like those open world games and yeah. all that kind of stuff, like the amount of detail. Some dude's been there for years, like making a tree look really, really good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but then oh, would yeah. have to do like a hundred of those different yeah. trees to, <laughs> to make so it look even more realistic. So yeah, crazy. So then if you, you talked about campus Bible study. Mm -hmm. So that's, how did you get involved with that? Because I've, speaking to a lot of um, guys from Ride of saying that campus Bible study was something really important into their, in their kind of spiritual formation. Um, I think I got into that because my sister got into it. Um, I think my sister, like even though she went through this rebellious phase of not going to church, like ultimately she actually has a huge impact on my spiritual journey as well. Mm. Just older siblings, I think actually tend to have mm. that. Um, she took, started taking church seriously and eventually like, yeah, went to New South as well and then went to CBS and so. What did she do at New South? Psych. Cool. Um, yeah, and so I think 
she basically spoke highly of it. And as I was just kind of a newish Christian then as well, keen to just tag along and join all the kind of yeah events and stuff. And so I went to those things. Mm. And why did your sister have such a big impact on your faith? I don't know, because you live with them and <laughs> <laughs> like she was the one who like trained me to do follow up and stuff like that. So like, yeah, I think, and, and you look up to your older sibling. I mean, I, I looked up to my older sibling mm. um, and I don't know why. Like, like <laughs> she was just there. Yeah. Were you both still going to the same church? Uh, same actually, so towards the end of high school, I can't remember which year it was, like the, the church actually forked into two churches. Like it's, oh, wow. it's pla- sort of planted. And, yeah. and so my sister went to a different location one. Okay. But it was still but, under the same umbrella. Ah, okay. Yeah. Was it the different language speaking congregations or no? And it was just like basically come to a new location. They bought a property and then basically had a location away from the mother church, basically. Oh, wow. Cool. Yeah. So she went and joined the newer yep. location. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And so at this time, so you're going to campus Bible study. You're going to church regularly too. Like yeah, still. Are you involved in youth ministry or anything like that? Um, like I think my involvement with ministry has always actually been more with church than with like campus Bible study or anything like that. Right. I attended towards church ministries. Yeah, uh, I started youth. Yeah, leading youth group too early. Really, I think end of end of, <laughs> end of year twelve. I think I was like, I don't know, vice chair of the, of the youth group or something like that. Um, and yeah, that that continued basically throughout my uni years where I was leading a youth group. And for how long did you lead a youth group? Because I know that we've had Joey on the podcast before, and you were one of his leaders. Yeah, so it was during that period that I, I was leading Joey, I think, like during uni. Um, and he was in high school. How was Joey? He was, one, I think he was okay. Like, like I think <laughs> the, the kids that I found challenging were like seven, year seven, eight kids. Like okay. They were the rowdy, rowdy ones. I think I led yeah. Joey when he was in year 10 or something like that, year 10, 11. And they've settled down by then, so. <laughs> Not all of them. Not all of them. <laughs> most, 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 most of them. As Brayden can probably attest, as oh. a uh, Friday, the Friday night passer. Everyone's an individual. <laughs> Some people rev rev up in your turn, you never know. Oh, yeah, yeah that's, I reckon that's true. Like when I was leading, I think there was a couple that rev down. Like there's a couple that revved up. Um, so then how do you get a job as a software engineer? What's the... What's the path out of uni that you're a software engineer? So, yeah, so I did software engineering and finished just after the dot-com bubble burst. (laughs) (laughs) Age my age. Um, But that was a terrible time to finish off software engineering, basically. Uh, And basically, I couldn't find work when I first came What was the dot-com bubble? Yeah, for people that don't know. Basically, there was a period where the internet finally became a huge thing everything yeah. was internet related like e-something ah. whatever like, yeah, every like yahoo is a good example of that the dot-com phase yeah yeah um I, I don't know what kind of companies came up and died during that time but basically everyone's throwing money at, at like anything related to the internet mm. yeah um but it's a bubble because you can't just it's throw money and, yeah. and like and so there's a crash where then all these companies collapsed and like all the, all the funding just went went down the drain somewhere um yeah, so basically it went back to reality to some extent <laughs> uh, where yeah. you, know, you should invest responsibly on companies that actually do 
valuable things rather than yeah. just we are on the internet somehow <laughs> and we are taking all your money. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that was the dot-com bubble. Uh, and yeah. when I think also a lot of um, uh, it became popular to float tech companies on the stock exchange. So then like they raised their value up heaps. So then people had thought they had lots of money to spend, but then when their market value crashed, mm. then they lost all their gains and a lot of companies failed. So like it would have like from I think it was from like the mid nineties it like ramped up a lot. So there was heaps of jobs in software engineering, but then things <laughs> things turned pretty sour pretty quickly, like within five or six years. Because there was it was like there was nothing supporting that market, I think, was mm. the is the idea. Sorry, I was just giving a little bit yes. of background on the dot com bubble. I'm not a I'm not an internet historian, so <laughs> good, is that good a job? Summary. Internet historian? Yeah, that would be I'm interesting. Sure it the would internet be. what is it, the internet wayback machine or something? <laughs> you can go and look up stuff like that. Yeah, so it was hard to find work, uh, and it ended up taking me seven months, I think, to find work. And mm. it's quite a challenging period of like not having work and staying home all day. Sending, I ended up writing programs to send job applications in. Like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I put my skills somewhere. That's right? cool. So good. Just, like basically do the, the mail merge, kind of like fill in my name and just like and like scan for the keywords in the in the job description, and yeah. then based on those keywords, add paragraphs to the the. <laughs> the letter like, and this then send, so send that off as an email with my resume or all this stuff hang on so you spent you obviously would have taken a bit of time to develop that but once it was working <laughs> what were you doing <laughs> besides that we just fire off like a hundred i don't know application letters and wait did and you have any like backfires where it like made stuff that made absolutely no sense or you just i think i think i was I, I think i was like not trusting myself so much that it was ah, just automatically okay. said. Yeah, I would just okay. like, at least read the thing oh, before. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was like, just, just like, <laughs> like sending, generate them. it, and then just how many? Yeah, how many were you sending out? Like, were you sending out? I've, I don't know. Like, I, I definitely sent over a hundred like application letters. Wow, um, over the period, but at, in phases. You know how you, you kind of feel like oh, I've got enough energy to actually apply for a couple of jobs, but then <laughs> after after a couple of days, it's just like, oh discouraging it is pretty discouraging yeah. when you just yeah. like apply for lots of jobs and it's yeah. like they also either they don't get back to you or they don't say no at least if they get back to you like yeah. okay we can move on but if they yeah. just leave it you're like oh they didn't even like me enough to send me a no letter yeah <laughs> so when did you end up landing eventually seven months after seven months uh i ended up landing in a company that i ended up staying for 16 years mm. so it's a it's a rare thing in uh, my industry mm. um but it's it's a good company it was like a Sort of like a non-profit organization that does financial markets research. Um, yeah, you wouldn't know it. It's a small company. That's all right. It was, it was a nice place to stay for that period. What was it called? Circa. Oh, yeah. Securities Industries Research Center for Asia Pacific. Yeah. Okay. So glad they, glad they came up with the acronym. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a long name <laughs> to tell people, like to answer the phone at reception. Circa International, (laughs) what is it, something, Asia Pacific, how can I help you? (laughs) Uh, And what were you doing there? Like, what were you designing or Um, coding? It's basically a, at the beginning, it was just a organization that was started to help finance students in uni do their research because finance students need to use a lot of data. There's no such thing as big data back then. And... um, the students don't themselves have much IT expertise and they need to be able to work with the, the input data. And so we helped as like a consultancy to help them, you know, produce the data they need for their PhDs and stuff like that. 
So that's how it started, but then because it's non-profit and therefore required funding from government at the beginning, um, we were not surviving basically, because you can't survive on kind of just government funding or for, for, for life. Or students. On these kind of things, yeah, exactly. So <laughs> students are not gonna pay you. Um, so <laughs> I think in the end, we, because of what we were doing, we ended up getting some data from Reuters back then, before we merged with Thomson, so it's Thomson Reuters now, um, where they sent us like basically these racks and racks of tapes back then of, of their stock exchange data. Mm. Um, and we took all that data and then ingested it all and basically built sort of like a, a very, very primitive big data system uh, in the beginning to serve academics still, but then also in the end, we monetized it and kind of sold it as a commercial product mm. to back to Thomson Reuters. Um, and so that they could resell to their clients, their big banks, you know, whatever, all, all those that, um, yeah, that crashed during the, during the, the, other, the next the, crash, the, the next crash, whatever. <laughs> the, the uh, GFC, GFC, that's what, yes, yeah. That's what, yeah. Um, yeah, so we, we then got suddenly a huge influx of, of income. And so that kind of survived, like kind of fed the company for like the next 15 years or something like that. Oh, wow. brilliant. Was that your idea? Oh, should, should, yes. <laughs> uh, <no. laughs> I was still a very noob engineer back then, <laughs> doing what I was told. When you said big data for everyone, anyone that's listening, what do you, you said big data didn't exist back then. What does that mean? Because I'm sure like lots of people have come in contact with what you would say is big data, but they probably wouldn't know it. It's just like, I guess there's no systems that help you like work with a large amount of data. Like, let's, I think in those types, they were, I don't know how many terabytes of data, but, but basically it's like, there's so much data. Uh, you want to help people extract the stuff they, they need, but how do you quickly do that? Uh, I mean, a tape takes, you know, half an hour to, you plug it in and you know, like load it for half an hour before you can read the data or whatever. Um, yeah, so basically, how do you build a system that allows easy querying of that data? Yeah. And, and so we built that system, basically. Well, so like if in your position, if I would ask like a basic thing that I would do that to access big data, like am I, what am I searching for? Like, So in, in my case, the data that we're working with were, was stock market data. So basically, let's say you want to know the... I don't know, the trading information of BHP or something like that for a certain period of time. Mm. And like who, who put bids in, who put, you know, like asks in and that kind of stuff. So mm. the, the tick data is what, what it's called. Like in the end, the system was called a tick history data. Yeah. And then you built, so you built a system to extract that data. So then when someone searched for it, they could get it really quickly. Yep, basically. Yeah. That, that's yeah. basically it. Yeah, yeah right. It's a very simple, actually like to the modern day, it's for quite simple, like thing, to be honest. Like, yeah, there, there's this thing called map reduce systems now and stuff like that, which allows you to quickly, like it's, it's basically a way of like partitioning data and then like extracting data out of the partitions. Um, yeah, these days users have systems that does that for you already. Back then we had to write our own, yeah. Mm. Yeah, right. Do you reckon that, and we talked about everything like moving so fast, but you knowing the details involved in doing something like that actually makes you a better programmer than these young whippersnappers who you're like, I'm from the old school. <laughs> uh, I, I think because my job right now doesn't deal much with big data. Like, like I mean, we, like I said, we use systems for that now. Um, I mean, I don't think that information technically helps that much for me today, but it does help me just in general, like 
thinking of ways of solving problems and just mm. practicing, yeah, breaking down hard problems into smaller mm. problems, that kind of thing. You said that problem solving is a thing that you really like doing. Is there, do you have like a, I don't know, like a model of solving problems now because you have to do them so often? Mm. I mean, software engineering problems, I think definitely. I mean, I have patents that, but I think that's kind of what actually makes software engineering fun is that no problem is the same. Mm. And you're not doing the same thing over and over again every day. And you have to come up with, I mean, obviously what you've done before helps if you've done similar things, mm. but there's just a nice thing of, hey, I need, I've got a new problem in front of me. Mm. How am I gonna solve it in a way that is nice for everybody else who's gonna read this and mm. maintain this in the future. Do you find that in ministry too? Uh, that there's no problem the same? Or yeah. <laughs> yeah. Although, I, I, you're dealing with people, not data. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> like, it's funny that like, you mentioned I, you know, how I preached online that, what, that one time. Like, that, that, and, and we did that like, trial service uh, yeah. when we were doing Berea. Like, we, basically the idea of, of that one was, okay, I, I would write a sermon. And because we want, I'll think about how a gathering would serve multiple languages, we wanted it translated. And so we wanted subtitles and stuff. And I ended up writing the sermon, translating it, but also writing a piece of software that shows the subtitles during Zoom when we were, when we yeah. were doing it, if you remember. <laughs> and I got Michelle to like press the space bar to, to go to the next line. <laughs> like I found like just my ability to, to write the sermon was so low compared to my ability to write that like software that actually right. does the, the, the subtitles on Zoom because yeah. I have so many years of experience doing software engineering, yeah. problem yeah. solving in that area versus problem solving, not problem solving, but like just the, the skills of like ministering God's word in a preaching kind of way yeah. to be so little that it, it was such a struggle compared to what I do day to day. Mm. Yeah, so, so yeah, it, it's in the sense that there are no problems the same, but then I have had so much less practice doing yeah. that, that it was much harder. Yeah. So, but then do you enjoy the challenge of having to solve the that problem or is it a little bit different because there's like more variables? Enjoys, uh, I don't know, I, I found it stressful for sure. Mm. Um, and so in that sense, it was challenging. But obviously I have a deeper heart in a sense for preaching God's word faithfully than mm. writing good software. <laughs> Although writing good software is important too. But <laughs> like, yeah, I, I want people to hear God's word, mm. I think. I would want to prioritize that over, mm. you know, a working piece of software. When did you start preaching? That was basically my first ever, like that one that we did at Berea. Oh, okay, for Berea, and then and then the digital service. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you have, and you you've also been preaching at Ride as well. Is that right? I, like, just did last week's, and that that was basically it. Okay, cool. And so I, I preached at Iris and Charlie's wedding. Oh, awesome! That's, That's really cool. Three so far in. Yeah. Yes. And for people that don't know, listening, Charlie and Iris go to ride as well, and they got married. Uh, is that about a year ago? Yeah, last year. Yeah, so that's that's cool to be invited to preach at someone's wedding when you haven't done too many. <laughs> they had a lot of faith in me. I, yeah. I <laughs> yeah. Um. So you worked at same place for sixteen years. Mm -hmm. That's a long, like a large amount of, like a large chunk of your life. Yes. I'm interested to know what. Um, what God's doing in your life through those 16 years of, like you got your first software engineering job there and, and you stayed there for a long time. What was what was God doing within those years? Um, I feel God's done a lot in 16 years. I don't know how to summarize it though. <laughs> I think I, I'm very good at being boring. 
<laughs> like, <laughs> like staying in a, in a place for 16 years, for example, but, but also like, like, I guess if you want to put it in a more Christian word, it's, it's faithfulness. Like, I think I'm, I'm very good at doing the same thing over and over again um, and not being bored of it. Uh, so at church, basically, I was, after, after like, I think I stopped doing youth group when I felt like I was too old for it, um, sometime early in the working, working years. Um, and we basically started doing kind of community groups, life, life groups um, at, at church. And I started leading one of those groups and basically did that for the, for the whole period since, yeah, since starting them. And yeah, just faithfully taught the Bible and, and led a small group of Christians at church. Um, what does that look like? Is, is that a different context of what we kind of do at our church or is it just you running a Bible study each week? Basically. People come to your yeah. place? Um, not my place because I didn't move out until quite late. Uh, yeah, but, but basically it's, I, I haven't been to a community group here actually, so hmm. I, I don't have anything to compare against, but I, I think, yeah. Well, I think you do a similar thing. Like yeah. we were discussing that today, wasn't it? Like you do a similar thing at Ride, but, but it's a Bible study because the core team has started as a Bible study. You have been doing Bible studies in a sense, but yeah. Like Bible chats is slightly different, but yeah. So yeah, meet at, meet at someone's place, do a Bible study and build the group up. Mm. Like pastorally care for the group mm. kind of thing. Yeah. So like, it's interesting that you're saying in terms of preaching that like you found that quite challenging. But prior to that, you'd been ministering and caring for people within... That, it's a um, much smaller, con- I mean, like, yeah, it took me a long time, I think, to get comfortable with the idea of leading Bible studies to begin with. Yeah. Although I've done that basically ever since I've been a Christian. <laughs> That's what I mean. <laughs> but still, it, it's just not natural for me, I think. I, my, yeah. my temperament is not one that drives. Mm. I think, like, so if you give me the task of, hey, these, this, we're doing Job or whatever this, set, this quarter and then just do these Bible studies, I can just, you know, read, read the Bible, teach what the main points are, that kind of thing. Um, but then if you tell me to, to actually lead the group or, or well, in our case, a gathering, um, I really struggle with like that kind of like taking the initiative and, and driving next steps. Okay. Um, yeah, I've always been a follower. Like, yeah, I remember like, like I was mentioning before, like these brothers in my old church that I was really close with, like there's, there's a few of them who are, who are these kind of like taking initiative, driving people. And I just really enjoy following their lead trusting that God is at work amongst us together. And I'm just someone who would yeah, faithfully serve to empower these plans or whatever mm-hmm. vision that people put in place um, to make them a reality kind of thing. Yeah. So that makes me think about the question of that, why did you choose to kind of get involved with Soul Revival and, and start, like, I feel like that you're very much driving something that's quite new and you've got to keep it moving forward with the church plan. So how did you get involved with that? And how did you get involved with grace to start doing that? Yeah, not definitely not something that I thought I would do. And <laughs> not that I'm unwilling, it's, it's more. So, so grace, grace approached me, uh, yeah, three years ago now, I guess, uh, with this idea of, of starting something. Did you meet her at City Bible Forum? As well? So she, she went to my church oh, uh, okay. before coming to coming here. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, but I think I'm very big on friendships. 
That's what I preached on last week. Um, so, <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah, uh, and Grace is a good friend. Yeah. And so when we talked about it, I think it really appealed to me, the idea of working with her. Um, and I feel like we are very much aligned in terms of just heart for the gospel. And also, I think what, I think I've already had maybe one interaction with Stu by that point, maybe. Yeah. Um, and talked about kind of the vision, like his vision for church and this idea of all age or stage. Um, and that I think aligned very much with my convictions that God was bringing me to, I think at the time, uh, through just reading books and reading the Bible. Uh, yeah, so I felt that in many ways, God was uh, preparing me to do something. Um, yeah, and not to be too boring and just <laughs> do the same thing over and over, like forever. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it was a hard decision. Like I, I remember just praying one night and spending the entire night just praying about it. Um, yeah. So. What, and so Grace brought the idea of possibly starting a church. Uh, I think we have different opinions on what exactly she, what idea she brought, but. Oh, <laughs> no, 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 tell us your side of the story. I think like what she was proposing, I told, I think I told her that like, it meant that I have to pull back from my church. Um, like, cause I think her idea is some kind of mission or Bible study. Um, anyway, maybe my memories, like, like I don't, I don't want to put words into her mouth that, that might not have been her words. Um, but yeah, I think we wanted a place where we could invite our friends, basically a, a, a gathering where the Bible is opened and yet non-Christians will feel like they would be able to uh, feel comfortable joining. Mm. Um, and yeah, so I had questions at the time about like what then would it mean for my involvement? And I think even from the beginning, I had this picture that at some point, like, I mean, I was very much unsure about what it would become because it was so vague, uh, but definitely that I needed to pull back from my current church. And at some point it meant potentially either changing churches or starting something new as, and this becomes the church. Um, so the church planning, I think it was definitely somewhere in my mind from the beginning. Whereas I don't think it, if you ask Grace now, she would say that no, no, it was just the evangelist Bible study that, that they were trying to start. Okay. Yeah. So you think God is working in that in a different way for you? Cause you said that God was preparing you for it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, I meant more like preparing me in the sense that like my convictions aligned with what Solis is doing. Okay. Um, and yeah, also just, working within the team with Grace and Michelle mm. and other friends. Did that become real for you when it, the plan was to kind of move from a missional Bible study, which is what Bible Chats was, mm -hmm. to becoming a fully-fledged church? There was a lot of like, yeah, just search, social searching kind of stuff happening mm. then. Um, uh, I don't know about becoming real. I think it was always quite real for me because I, I think though, like, I mean, it's God, God in his humorous ways, like, because once we started Bible Chats, COVID happened, right? Yeah. And yeah. Like everyone went online and it meant actually that, although in my original thinking, I was thinking for the first year, I would still be committed to my church as a member, my old church as a member. I'll try to invest into this new thing, this Bible Chats thing and see how that goes. Mm. Um, but, because of COVID, like 
it meant that I suddenly like had a much greater distance to my old my my own church because it's all online. I'm just watching the live streams um, and not interacting with people as much. And if I already pulled out of my own live group that I was leading, I'm now involved in this group. Um, that became my community as well for for church. And so it wasn't too difficult to then say at, at the end of even halfway or I think three quarters through that year to then actually say goodbye to my old church and say that, hey, I'm actually with Soul Revival now. Um, yeah, so mm. wasn't probably as traumatic as it would have been because I was with my old church even like, like it was 25 years or something like that. Yeah, yeah right. That's still a big decision. Yeah. Mm. You have a question then, Brandon? Sorry? No. I thought you were going to ask him something. <laughs> well, I just thought... So you, uh, my last question, I suppose, about Ride, and I'm asking this within the context of the Supporters Supper that's coming up on the 4th of Feb. When, when was that? Uh, 4th of February, 2023, <laughs> <laughs> at 4pm, <laughs> at 74A, Bowden Street, Bowden Street, Ride. Presbyterian. Pres- Ride Presbyterian Church in Ride. It's side in hall. Ride. It's a side yes. hall. Yes. I haven't actually <laughs> been there. I think I might be going soon. You haven't been there. I haven't actually been to that one. I've been, as I said, oh. I've been to Grace and Michelle's lounge room. It's a very nice. It's a nice little oh, I had setup. A gr- I had a great time. Yeah. It was such a great, it was such a great vibe. I went there with myself and my older son. Well, I only have one son. <laughs> my son, Leo. And, um, he, I remember you, I think I've already said this, he was talking to a Louisa for like half an hour. <laughs> it was really cool. Um, when I went, I felt very much how you guys were trying really hard to be Soul Revival. And for someone that's grown up in Soul Revival since year nine, that's when I started to go to youth group, never been to any other church like regularly, to see you guys in another a suburb quite a long way away from anywhere that I, we live or in people that I usually went to church with go or live to see you guys in a completely different context in terms of location also different cultural background as we as we know but also to see that so like you guys are really trying to live out soul revival as well and doing the same kind of thing it was very encouraging to me and not because soul revival and the shock was all a mess and the way that we do church is the only way to do church. But it was really lovely to see the way that Jesus Jesus transforms all of us, like we were saying earlier, but also that we can express that in different ways. But to see doing the same ways we're trying to do here at Kirawi and at Yarrawarra and at Cronulla, that does translate. And I think that's what was really exciting for me. And now to see you guys doing, you know, you're going to be a full-on church plant now along with having Joey come on board and all that kind of stuff. It's very, very encouraging, and that's why I want to go over there again. <laughs> because, <laughs> I mean, that's the only disappointing thing to me. The only disappointment is that you're just long, a longer way away. Mm. Nothing else. And mm. that, that's just really exciting and really fun. So I just wanted to love to have you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Might be next week, actually, I think. Um, last question, because we are, before we wrap up the chips. You've looked, we've looked over like a lot of parts of your life mm-hmm. and now you are obviously an older Christian than you were. <laughs> what do you know now as an older Christian that you wish you knew when you were a younger Christian? And um, I'm wondering if you can weave this into the spiritual family tree. So I'm trying to figure out a way to get it back to that. <laughs> but I haven't worked it out yet. That's fine. Um, I think I would have liked to have given the 
the convictions about like how church ought to be like that I have now to my younger self earlier, oh, if that okay. makes sense. Like growing up in a, in a Chinese, the Chinese church is great and I, I have nothing bad to say about them. But I think one of the, the things I wrestled with about church for many, many years is, um, yeah, I, I think, and this is a typical, I think of Chinese churches where the English congregation of the church is a younger congregation because it's typically the second generation. Um, and there's, there's a distance, there feels like there's a distance between that congregation and the older generation, the, the, the Chinese congregations. Uh, and both like obviously in the generation gap, but also even just in terms of theology and convictions and things like that. Um, but as a result, it, the, yeah, there's this divide that even though we're all Chinese by, by looks, like, like we, we are in some ways more similar than like your typical like multicultural church. Um, yet there is not as much unity that you would hope to see. Like, like the, the unity that would happen would be, okay, you have a church camp and you have like this compulsory fun kind of, kind of <laughs> section where everyone's forced to do play games together. And, and those games are either corn, like corny to one group and like just inappropriate to the other group. So it, it never quite works. Um, and I, yeah, I think, and as growing up in the English congregation as a young person, I, I did have that feeling of, uh, I, I just want, independence from this Chinese older, older okay. congregation because we can make our own decisions. We, we know what, what's best for ourselves. Um, uh, yeah, but then I feel like that, yeah, it misses out on the gospel, like supernatural testimony that we can have of different people can come together mm. and be united in Christ uh, in spite of our differences mm. and actually learn from our differences the way that, you know, like shock absorber right, teaches. Um, yeah, so so that's one of the, the, I think towards my later years in in the church, I, I tried to like do some of that at, at church, like just to like reach out in friendship to other congregations, but it's hard, like it's culturally just not quite there. Mm. So yeah, but yeah, in my youth, definitely I had mm. just not helpful views of mm. the unity within church. I feel like you have, what I said just before you, I asked you that question, you said it much better just then <laughs> than I could have. I think you're right. I think I think that hopefully what we're trying to do here at Soul Revival as well is just, uh, again, we've talked about it before, it doesn't matter what our background is, like Jesus is the leveler. No, nothing else has to come into that and then we can express church out of that rather than trying to force people together and then go, hey, you know Jesus says this is good too. Like it's... It, almost like it's a little bit backwards kind of thing it's like and is that that time do you think that's where your convictions like you're talking about and then you started reading books and things like that that's where your convictions came from was just your experience in that chinese church i think it, yeah it came from i think somehow these books landing uh, on my lap which kind of talks about this stuff and then as i was reading them and then then interpreting how my current church at the time was was living out the gospel or not living out the gospel mm. in, imperfectly. Um, yeah, I think that's where I became more and more convinced that, you know, the gospel can do greater things. Mm. Um, yeah. uh, any final words, Braden? I've talked a lot, sorry. So I would love to give you the floor to... It's all good. To my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. Come on. It's I just think it's super encouraging. I think that, um, yeah, the... God has done a lot with the ride gathering in the last couple of years yeah. and I, I've been very blessed to 
get to pop in every so often and do Berea with Ian. And then I, I went to, I think I went with Stu at the first time he pitched you guys being a Vespa mm. at a meeting. And then obviously getting to come along, I got to play music a couple of times at the gatherings this last year and come and hang out. So it's just been very lovely to see, um, yeah, God doing amazing things with you guys and, um, yeah, the awesome things that he's doing through you and in partnership with Jesus, it's pretty encouraging. Yeah, really appreciate all the times you've come. Oh, it's, it's been fun. <laughs> I um, I met, I had to do an assignment for college where I texted Ian so I had to interview someone from a different culture okay. and Ian gave me Charlie's name and I interviewed Charlie for, I don't know, like I felt really awkward about it because it was like, can I interview you twice, uh, three times for an hour each time? Well, it's like asking for three hours of someone's time. Just Charlie is like the only person who would be nice enough to be like, yeah, sure, that's fine. <laughs> and like I chatted with him for like hours and hours. And then like this was before he was a Christian and it was really interesting and fun. But then yeah, a couple of months later, found mm. out that he was a Christian. Mm. Yeah, these guys are just doing awesome work. Very yeah. Encouraging. And the fact that you grew even online. Yeah. As an online Bible chats, Bible study shows that, you know, I think that you guys who are leading, it, especially in the core team, are very faithful. Mm. And I think that's what's really most important, especially when you're doing a church plant, is that you're super faithful, saying, God, take us where you want this to go, rather than going, we're going to plant a church and then we're going to do this. And like, I think, like, we're talking about solving problems and how it's easy for you with software engineering. But I feel like that faithfulness is letting you're letting God solve the problems. And I think that's where, yeah, that faithfulness is really key. And I think that's something that we can all learn from as well, mm -hmm. that you're willing to go, we're going out pretty blind here. We haven't done this before. This is a new venture. Um, all from your learnings of um, the things that you experienced in the Chinese church and, and all that kind of stuff. But to go, we're going to give to God now. I think is one of the most encouraging things I've got from this. And I think that you said also in that you're boring. And I think that's a l taking a little bit too far. I think I think that what I took from it is actually you actually have really you can really persevere rather than I'm just doing the same thing over and tenacity. over. Tenacity. Yeah, tenacity. <laughs> that's it. Like and and you are I think you are tenacious and the fact that you want to keep solving problems, I think you said that God put you in situations about in terms of software engineering and all that kind of stuff that it really matches the skill set that God's given you but he's also teaching you a lot with the skills that he's gave given you as well but you're also not like I know you said oh, I'll do things for a long time but you also have shown over your time that you're willing to just when you make the decision you're going all in just like when you research things to the nth degree so like even if it was uh, deciding to <laughs> to send out a hundred applications like you're like I'm going to get I'm going to do this and I'm going to make it happen and then you use your skills to design a program <laughs> to make it even easier for you but it's still that's that's being tenacious like you said I think it's I think it's been a real joy having you on this podcast and I think uh, the only reason I'm saying is that you kind of said that you're boring in like a derogatory way towards yourself but I don't see it that way um, and that's why it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the Chip Lunch podcast and I've, sure. I've learned a lot. What did I, I, there was a thing in the middle of the podcast that I actually learned about. Oh, the high and low fantasy. So, <laughs> but again, that, this is why we do this podcast is to learn things about each other, mm. being community with each other and hopefully just doing community in a different way. People can learn about each other just listening to the podcast. 
You'll have to ask Ethan about the fantasy. He'll know a lot oh, more about it than I know. would. He reads a lot of fantasy, doesn't yeah. he? That's a good. I have point. to have Roz Bilhars on the podcast. That is soon. a good. That is she another good, good guest. Good feeling. She's very fantastical. Yes. <laughs> uh, fantastical beast. For, for our book podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's high, right. high and low fantasy book podcast. Yeah, that's yeah, that's probably not one I'm going to be on too often. <laughs> 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 but yeah. Um, Anyway, let's wrap up the chips. But thank you so much, Ian, for being on. Yeah. Thank you for being here at Soul Revival Kiriwe all day. And willing to come on to the podcast at the end of the day too. <laughs> As we said, we went a bit all over the place because it was in the afternoon. But, yeah, thanks very much. Thanks for the lovely shirt. <laughs> and uh, can't wait to hang out with you guys at Ride and continue to partner with you as you, um, you know, want to spread the gospel. And, again, we'll say to our listeners – Saturday, 4th of February, is when Ride's supporters' dinner is on from 4pm, 74A Bowden Street, Ride at Ride Presbyterian Church. Yep. If you can make it, the guys would love you to come along to support them on that particular evening. So, If yeah, you can't, be that. praying. Yeah, 100%. Great yeah. point. And, um, yeah, we'll leave it at that. And Oh, we always finish with a one-way. And if you're willing to finish this with a one-way, that'd be great. <laughs> so thank you again. Thank you, everyone, listening and watching. Love that we always finish this way, but if you don't feel like it, well, but every other time we do. Sometimes so people have been on and they don't feel like. It. Yeah, sometimes they they're on there and they're like, oh, and like they don't know what a one way is. So I apologise to those people that have made it uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> if you're listening to the podcast, okay. so thank you everyone listening. Thank you, Dean, again, and one way. One way.